Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Seema Portin from the University of California, San Francisco, talking about muscle invasive bladder cancer. I'm Claire de la Calle, a PGY5 at UCSF. Um, it is my great honor to introduce Dr. Seema Porton today. She's going to talk to us about muscle invasive bladder cancer, and I'll help moderate the questions at the end. Dr. Porton, welcome. Thanks, Claire. Um, so today I hope to cover a guidelines-based approach to muscle invasive bladder cancer. I also want to add some new and exciting things that are happening, particularly in the realm of genomics as well as some exciting trials that are happening in terms of neoadjuvant therapy. So I will add a little bit in there, but I'm primarily focused on that, which is covered in the AUA SUO ASTRO guidelines, as well as uh, the AUA core curriculum. I do draw some data and, um, and uh, some principles from the EAU guidelines, which have been uh, recently updated as well. And so it's a little bit of a mixture of all of those plus a little NCCN guidelines when we start talking about things like chemoradiation. Uh, these are my disclosures. And again, these are the objectives and I'll try not to um, overload you with too many heat maps uh, when it comes to the gen genomics part, but I think there's some really exciting um, uh, progress and uh, research being done. So to start with the basics uh, with epidemiology, with bladder cancer, there's about 1,300, uh, sorry, 130,000 <laughs> deaths per year. Um, approximately 25 to 30% of patients are muscle invasive at presentation. Of patients treated with cystectomy for muscle invasive bladder cancer, about 57% were muscle invasive at presentation and 43% started non-muscle invasive and eventually progressed. A good amount of patients will have micrometastasis at cystectomy, and depending upon the study, this is estimated at being somewhere between 25 to 50%. And risk factors for the development of bladder cancer are smoking, occupational exposure, past pelvic radiation, infections in some regions of the world like schistosomiasis, as well as exposures to toxins that, that we give as treatments or chemotherapy such as cyclophosphamide. One really important thing that I would really like to highlight is that with the diagnosis of muscle invasive bladder cancer, this is a teachable moment in terms of patients who are smoking. And smoking cessation is, is paramount to outcomes as well as overall patient health. So I think it's a really good opportunity as urologists to introduce this concept to patients and help them um, quit smoking because it can be game-changing in terms of in terms of their life with recurrence, but also just in terms of being able to recover after treatments and not die from other causes related to smoking, such as cardiovascular disease. So when you look at the diagnosis of muscle invasive bladder cancer, our cornerstone of this is a transurethral resection of a bladder tumor. And so this is in the wheelhouse of every urologist, and it is really, really important that this is done well. So when you do a TRBT, what you're trying to go for is you want to get a good estimate of someone's clinical stage. So you want to get tissue for pathology. So you really want to know if something is muscle invasive, and that is what you're really trying to go for. You're also trying to completely resect and do a maximal TUR if it is safe in that patient. 
And so you're really going for a complete resection if you can make that happen at that first time. The other really important thing with the TRBT that I think is forgotten a lot is the bimanual exam or exam under anesthesia. And so to go over that, if you feel a mass after you've done a complete resection, that's considered clinical T3B disease. If you feel like it's invading things such as the vagina in women or prostate in men, that is clinical T4A. If you cannot move the bladder on a bimanual exam, if it's fixed to the wall, that's a clinical T4B. And so it's really important to get a sense of someone's clinical stage. For certain variants, it's even more important, like plasma cytoid, that doesn't really show up as locally advanced on imaging, but uh, nine times out of 10, you can feel it unless there are some other patient considerations such as morbid obesity that preclude a good uh, exam under anesthesia. You also wanna notice other things during your TRBT. You wanna notice the location of the tumor. Is it near the bladder neck and urethra? Is it near the trigone? Is it covering a UO? Are you worried about something in the upper tract um, based on tumor location? Do you see other patches such as carcinoma in situ? How big is the tumor? How many are there? Is it multifocal or is it just a solitary tumor? These will help you guide a patient in terms of a shared decision-making process and figuring out what treatment option is the right for them. You should consider getting a secondary geopathologist review, especially with variant histology, and this is highlighted in the most recent version of the AUA guidelines. In terms of imaging, we really stick with the basics, meaning a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis with IV contrast is preferable. However, if someone cannot get IV uh, contrast, which is iodinated with CT scan, then an MRI urography or an MRI with gadolinium contrast um, is acceptable alternative. In terms of chest imaging, our guidelines include being able to use a chest x-ray, but many of us use a CT chest to rule out metastasis to the lungs. Unfortunately, imaging is a little limited. There's a false negative rate regarding nodal staging up to 68%. Since most nodal disease with muscle invasive bladder cancer is microscopic and hence not, um, doesn't meet the criteria of being over eight millimeters or over one centimeter on imaging. If you see hydronephrosis, it's a strong predictor of locally advanced disease and, a, and it's a poor prognostic factor. If you see it, be really suspicious that something worse is happening and then also decompress it. You can use a nephrostomy tube or a stent. This is really important in terms of being able to preserve someone's kidney function to open up their options in terms of their treatment. There are some data suggesting maybe a stent leads to upper tract seating down the line, but it was a very small study and retrospective in nature. And, and I would say you go with what, what you know, what you have access to, and also with discussions from the patient. Bone scans are not routinely ordered unless there's a suspicion based on clinical findings, meaning someone has signs or symptoms. So this is where a good history and physical, I didn't mention that before, is really important in terms of listing from someone what other kind of imaging do you need to do. A brain scan or brain MRI or CT is again, not necessarily, unless someone has small cell carcinoma of the bladder, which is one of the variant histologies we'll talk about later, or someone has some type of sign or symptom or, or clinical finding that directs you to, toward doing that. If someone's ALK-FOSS is elevated, you can look for other reasons it could be, but that may be a reason to do a, a bone scan in that situation. What else is on the, on the horizons in terms of something new? MRI is not really new. However, for bladder cancer, um, it is relatively new in looking at uh, localized staging. 
So the accuracy can range from 50 to 90% and is really dependent upon imaging technique. So advantages are that um, you can do dynamic gadolinium enhanced MRI. So very similar to prostate, which has pyrads. There's an emerging uh, classification called virads for bladder. This is much better in terms of determining locally advanced disease, but MRI still suffers from the same uh, inaccuracy and false negatives that CT does in terms of nodal imaging. PET has been looked at in, in, in waves and cycles over the past 10 to 15 years on whether it's useful in patients with bladder cancer. Most of the guidelines suggest that really PET shouldn't be ordered as a routine for bladder cancer. Although it has good accuracy, it has false positives which have downstream effects for patients. The guidelines recommend PET specifically for cases where you see an abnormality and you're worried about metastasis like in a retroperitoneal lymph node or a visceral organ, but yet you can't access it via biopsy and you need something to make a decision whether you treat a patient as locally advanced, localized, or metastatic. And so that's the, the, the narrow guideline-based indication for PET-CT right now. I think the future is can we find a marker like PSMA for bladder? And are we gonna be able to utilize that to better uh, clinically stage patients? And uh, that is something exciting and new on the horizon. So if this is the number one single most important slide in this presentation is that muscle invasive bladder cancer is deadly. So the natural history without curative treatment is a high rapid rate of mortality. It's about 12 months to metastasis and 18 to 24 months to death. The most recent series suggests that median survival in untreated muscle invasive bladder cancer, so that's without curative intent, is somewhere around one year. And so Treatment trends in the United States really show us that there's a large unmet need for curative therapy, especially in our aging population, and, and biologic age and chronologic age is different. And so this is where sometimes looking at a patient's comorbidities and frailty may help you decide uh, whether you can do treatment with curative intent. Um, so this is a study from the uh, NCDB that showed that only 41% of the cohort underwent RC, and that's a lot higher than some of the other uh, data sets that look at a more population-based versus cancer centers. Probably the most important data in this setting is, is from our colleagues in Europe who looked at a giant Swedish national registry. And in those patients, um, what they found was that only about, um, out of 100, uh, 1,352 patients with T2 or T3 disease, only about half, a fourth to a half, were treated uh, with curative intent. And what they were able to say in that specific registry is that those that weren't treated with curative intent, overall survival was nine months. Um, and, and that was a huge difference from those who were treated with curative intent, where overall survival was in the 70 or 80%. And so that study probably really tells us that we need to be a lot more aggressive about treating patients with curative intent. And so what is curative intent? What should you do? Um, you should look at patients in the context of comorbidity, tumor characteristics, and quality of life implications regarding the different treatment options but you have a wide variety of, of treatment options available to you. It's not just radical cystectomy with pelvic lymphadenectomy, although that is the gold standard. Um, you wanna to talk to patients about chemotherapy, new adjuvant versus adjuvant, 
if you're going to do neoadjuvant chemotherapy, it should be cisplatin-based. You want to offer adjuvant chemotherapy for certain select patients. In terms of bladder preservation, we now have very good evidence that trimodal therapy works, and that consists of a maximal TURBT as well as chemotherapy plus radiation, and I put a link to the guidelines here. What should you not do? What is not guideline-based and what is not really going for an intent to cure? And this is with a few exceptions. So radical TRBT alone as primary therapy is not technically curative intent. There are a lot of retrospective series uh, that show that you will get away with it with certain patients, but 40% will require cystectomy. There's definitely selection criteria such as a small tumor, a favorable location where you can completely resect, no hydronephrosis and no carcinoma in situ. Partial cystectomy should not really be, be done unless this is a uracal tumor or a diverticular tumor. Radiation alone should not really be done in terms of curative intent and using carboplatin and neoadjuvant chemotherapy should not be done if you're going for a curative intent or a real neoadjuvant chemotherapy approach with radical cystectomy following. So stage equals survival, and this can be depicted in many ways. You can look at it with uh, T-stage and N-stage broken up. And as you can see, there's like a tiered approach when you look at the graph on the left and look at the lines going from blue all the way down to red. You can look at it just as a pathologic stage in aggregate, looking at just T2 to T4 and then all node positive together. But what you really see from here is if you have a lower stage and you are node negative, you live. And so with that principle, at UCSF, we use something called COBRA, or Cancer of the Bladder Risk Assessment Score. This is really easy to calculate. It's age, T-stage, and node density. And for each single value of COBRA score that you get, it, it discriminates between um, uh, what could, you could counsel a patient to expect if they were to reach that T and N stage. And so you do better. Again, T0, N0 does a lot better, that's that blue line, than T4 and 3. You can look at pathologic staging after cystectomy with the TNM staging too. Again, the really important thing to highlight here is that a retroperitoneal lymph node is considered M1. It's considered a metastasis. It's not considered uh, as part of your regional lymph nodes. This is a trick that um, uh, likes to be employed in terms of the various different tests you take, such as in-service boards, uh, et cetera. And so that is one really important thing to, to remember about the TNM staging. The rest you can, you can look up as you need it in terms of staging a patient. I think the real problem with bladder cancer is although we know stage matters, particularly final stage, especially if someone's having neoadjuvant chemotherapy, the other thing that we know is our clinical staging does not equal our pathologic staging. And so when you look at people who are thought to be clinical T2, T3, and T4, and you look at whether they were downstaged, the same stage, or upstaged, for clinical T2 disease, about 54% of patients are upstaged. And so this shows, highlights a need to improve our staging. However, um, this is a little bit of, of what we're stuck with, and it's a little bit of why neoadjuvant chemotherapy is considered the standard of care. So how, when you're talking to a patient about this, the way I like to frame it is, how are we gonna get you to um, that really favorable pathologic stage if we're employing the neoadjuvant chemotherapy with radical cystectomy approach? And when I talk to patients about that, I, I, 
I discussed with them that neoadjuvant chemotherapy is one way to get there, and it really is considered the standard of care and noted in multiple guidelines, despite having some, some downsides, which I'll discuss. So when you just look at the absolute survival benefit in a meta-analysis of multiple different uh, randomized controlled trials, it's modest at five to 7% in terms of five-year survival. The risk-benefit ratio really does favor those locally advanced tumors, those ones that where the clinical stage is T3 or T4. Um, and this is, again, this is where your examiner anesthesia becomes really important if you can't rely on your imaging to tell you that. And so this is a patient that you may want to nudge more toward neoadjuvant chemotherapy when you're discussing risks and benefits. Those that respond um, dramatically benefit. So it's those that are the 30 to 40% who are rendered PT0 who really benefit from neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Unfortunately, we aren't able to predict that, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Comorbidities may preclude this. So GFR, cardiac status, uh, pre-existing peripheral neuropathy, specifically in patients with diabetes, hearing loss, all of these things preclude getting cisplatin-based therapy. However, every patient deserves a medical oncology consult to discuss these aspects with the risks and benefits of neoadjuvant chemotherapy compared to adjuvant chemotherapy. And the main regimens used, and the, these names are important to know, MVAC, methotrexate, vinblistin, vinblistin doxorubicin, adriamycin, and cisplatinin or gemcitabine and cisplatinin. It, it is not clear which regimen is better. Um, some people believe that MVAC uh, leads to a higher complete response rate. However, that has not been borne out in, in many different comparisons made between the two. Um, what really is important or a big takeaway for neoadjuvant chemotherapy is that it must be cisplatinin-based. Carboplatinin mm -hmm. is not sufficient. And so can we predict a response to chemotherapy? Can we use any clinical characteristics that we can get from our TRBT, from our imaging, from our patient history? And turns out there are none. Even when we look at age, there are no clinical characteristics that say someone will do better with neoadjuvant chemotherapy than without. And so that's been studied um, and published by MD Anderson. Culp and Dickstein did a, did a big paper on that, as well as looking at it in other various uh, retrospective cohorts. You could kind of surmise, high-risk features are, are patients who have lymphovascular invasion on TRBT. 35% of those patients will have node-positive disease at cystectomy. Hydronephrosis, like I said before, makes you suspicious that something worse is happening. Um, having a palpable mass on examiner anesthesia after a resection is definitely uh, something in that category. Variant histology can be considered high risk. Some may or may not respond to neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and that's a bit debatable at this time. Other uh, poor prognostic factors that have been studied in the literature are carcinoma in situ and size, although those are not as well described as the others listed here. When you look at that, which is the graph um, on the right-hand side of the screen, disease-specific survival is 100% related to risk, which again is related to stage. And so if you predicted right, if you said someone was low risk and you didn't do chemotherapy, that's that LR equal sign, people did pretty well. That survival is around 80% disease specific. If you were, if you estimated someone was high risk and um, you, you thought that you were going to give them chemotherapy, but they ended up being downstage, like that green line, you would have unnecessarily given them chemotherapy 
and their prognosis was already good, meaning that your staging was a little bit wrong and they really were low risk. But the part that's the, the, the real um, bummer or downside is when you look at this low risk group, this group you wouldn't have given chemotherapy to, and then they're upstaged. Their survival is a little lower. It's uh, around 60%, 70 to 60%, which is okay. Um, but if you could have gotten those patients to have a complete response and continue to have a low stage by giving them neoadjuvant chemotherapy, they would have done better. So again, it shows that we can kind of predict with clinical characteristics, but they're not 100%. Just like we don't really know who's going to respond to that chemotherapy. And I would say that's probably one of the hardest things to talk to a patient about is that what do I think their response is going to be to chemotherapy? Well, I can tell them about 30 to 40% will have an ex exceptional response, and that leads to essentially long-term survival. But I don't know who it's going to be. And so because of that, we give it to everyone, and that's a pretty hard conversation to have with patients. These are four different patients at UCSF um, that you see here, and their clinical stage, some features about them, who got neoadjuvant chemotherapy, so you can see I tried to follow guidelines on some of them, uh, who had surgery and the timing to surgery, right? And then I had a patient who declined surgery. That's not really guideline-based at all. Primary chemotherapy alone is not a uh, guideline-based treatment with curative intent for muscle invasive bladder cancer, although uh, we will see with some selections and trials that are ongoing, it may be an option for certain patients, and I'll discuss that. Um, and then look at this final pathology. This poor guy who had T2 disease clinically got gemsis times four and ended up with a pretty terrible um, final pathology and outcome. Uh, patient two um, did exactly what we wanted, had a bad stage to begin with, got dose-dense MVAC and had a complete response. Um, patient three had micropapillary cancer, so we uh, decided to forego chemotherapy, um, and that is debatable now uh, whether that's the right thing to do, but about five years ago it, it was, and they have a pretty good outcome. And patient four had chemotherapy but refused to have surgery, and they're still doing well about five years later. And so how do we make sense of this? Is there any way to have known that before having the patient undergo therapy? And this is where the new frontier is. So stick with me as I go through some genomics um, and heat maps and talk a little bit about some of the exciting research that's happening in muscle invasive bladder cancer. And then I'll go back to guidelines and cystectomy and node dissection and extent and all of those um, uh, uh, typical surgical things in, in about five minutes. I'll try to just spend five minutes on this part. And so our colleagues in breast cancer and other precision oncology paradigms use RNA expression profiles or immunohistochemistry, or they use genomic alterations like DNA mutations to help figure out what treatments to give patients. And so could we possibly do that in bladder cancer? And I think we're getting close, although we're not there yet. And so when you look at the intrinsic subtypes of breast cancer, this is what a heat map looks like. Red is up, green is down. And when you look at these heat maps, generally you have some kind of classification of tumors on the, on the uh, top side. And on this left side, you usually have these signatures that correspond to possibly treatments or behavior. And so when you look at these, when you look at these different classifications up top, you'll see that they are green and red based on a signature. So this 
basal-like subtype has a lot of basal-like markers that are red, which is high, and luminal markers are green, which is, which is low, and that's how they make these subtypes or classifications. And, and what you're trying to do is infer biology um, from RNA expression. And so this is a pretty simplistic one for breast cancer. It's, they're a lot more sophisticated now. Um, but in 2011, technically, they could have taken their mRNA-based subtypes, used IHC, and then decided what kind of therapy to give patients, endocrine, cytotoxics, um, endocrine plus cytotoxic, and they were able to, to link uh, the signatures to response to treatment, and that changed patients' outcomes. And so for bladder cancer, you, you're starting to see a lot more um, manuscripts and papers and research centering on that, and, and that's been done by many groups. So first came from the Lund group in our colleagues in Europe in 2012, and slowly from UNC, from MD Anderson, from TCGA, um, you start seeing more and more evidence that potentially we could, quote, subtype bladder cancer. I think this is the last heat map um, that I have for you, but very similarly with breast cancer, with bladder cancer, these keratin markers, which is over here on the right-hand side of the uppermost graph, um, you'll see that these keratin markers denote basal tumors. It doesn't matter where, what they originate from, but these keratin markers uh, confer a basalness to this. And so that's why this is bright red in terms of basal type bladder cancers. And you can do that with luminal and you can kind of group tumors on a bunch of different metrics um, when, you, when you kind of look at these using these uh, predefined signatures. And so does it really matter if something is a basal tumor or a luminal tumor, or does it matter if we bin them into these clusters or these subtypes or groups um, that's defined by RNA expression? And the answer is, is maybe. And so this was a outline proposed by the TCGA, which basically took over 400 bladder tumors um, and subtyped them based on, mainly based on RNA expression. Um, there were some uh, DNA-based analysis, which I'm not gonna go into, but they were able to divide them up between luminal and basal, and then subdivide these into categories. And they came up with a five-tiered classification. And from these, these categories had certain characteristics about them. The luminal papillary had FGFR3 mutations. Um, they tend to have low, a low CIS signature. And when you looked at it clinically, like from a survival perspective, how these patients did, these patients were low risk. Um, when you looked at luminal infiltrated tumors, uh, they looked a little different. The, it looked like they had some immune signature, uh, specifically PDL1 um, type signature that might confer that maybe this is, is a group that might respond to a new adjuvant immunotherapy. When you go over to this basal squamous group, which is in this yellow color, um, what this sort of signified was that this was the group that seemed to do really well with new adjuvant chemotherapy, meaning when you compared groups who had chemo and who didn't and who fell within the subtype, you could reverse bad outcomes. And so maybe this has some type of clinical implications. 
This has led to a lot of people trying to form a consensus so everybody can speak the same language called a consensus molecular classification. As you can see, that previous slide showed a ton of different groups having a ton of different systems. Um, if you are so inclined, you could take your genomic data uh, and pop it into this, um, this website and you can actually come out with molecular classifications for your own tumors. It's a little bit of a do-it-yourself um, statistical package. So if you're interested, this is the website for it. But we're starting to move towards speaking about bladder tumors from a molecular perspective. There is a commercially available test uh, called Decipher Bladder that is able to classify patients into four different subtypes from a TRBT. And this is supposed to predict outcomes to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, this is a summary slide, but let me show you uh, the study by Seiler et al. in European Urology in 2017, which basically said, yes, can classify patients into these four subgroups at that time. This subgrouping has changed a little bit since then. But what I want you to focus is on this red line. This is that basal group that had pretty terrible um, outcome in terms of uh, disease-specific survival, somewhere around 30%. And when this group got chemotherapy, you see a flip in the curve where the red curve is now doing actually pretty well. The other curves stayed pretty steady, suggesting that maybe those patients didn't really get that much benefit from neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I think the important thing to, to know in this is that we still have to do more studies actually doing this for patients, using a test like this to, to call who, who does and does not get chemotherapy. Um, many of us worry about the outliers. What if they had a heterogeneous tumor and they would have had a response in their lymph nodes if they got chemotherapy, but based on a test that we send, uh, we decided not to give it to them. Um, however, this appears to work pretty well on publications that have been uh, presented thus far and as an area of active research and interest. When you flip it around to what other genomic things can we use to classify tumors, DNA alterations are another perspective. So that's technically mutations, copy number amplification. So this is looking at a different part of our genome. And what has been shown by uh, the group at Memorial Sloan Kettering, as well as Fox Chase, is that when you have an alteration in any of your uh, DNA damage pathway, that your chemotherapy response is much better than when you don't have an alteration in one of these genes. And so this is a study by Pistek et al, which was actually looking at patients who got secondary muscle invasive bladder cancer, meaning they had non-muscle invasive bladder cancer first, um, had BCG or other intravesical therapy, and then developed a muscle invasive tumor. And they compared those patients to patients who, who, who just presented with muscle invasive cancer. And what they found is patients who presented with muscle invasive cancer actually had more DNA alterations and therefore had a higher predicted chemotherapy response than patients who had secondary muscle invasive bladder cancer. This gets into a, a whole nother set of really interesting science and findings, but it, what, what it does highlight is maybe DNA alterations um, could also be effective at deciding chemotherapy response. And, and so what if you combine the two? Are the patients who are predicted based on RNA subtypes to respond to chemotherapy the same that have DNA alterations? And the, the short answer to that is no. Um, so in this study by Betsy Plymack, who looked at this, she did find that 
any alteration in DNA repair genes, predicted pathologic response um, to chemotherapy. What was also interesting is so did molecular subtypes, and this was using a three-tiered classification, but the two signatures didn't correlate with each other. So maybe we need some more comprehensive genomic test to be able to decide whether tumor is going to respond to chemotherapy um, that is not just based on molecular expression or not just based on a DNA alteration. So there was a large prospective predictive biomarker trial in muscle invasive bladder cancer called Coxin, and patients were randomized to either get uh, uh, GC or dose dense MVAC followed by cystectomy. Basically, what the trial was designed is, is predicting a, using a score that was based on drug sensitivity from in vitro characterization. And so they call it an algorithm of correlation of correlations, but if I were to summarize it in, in something more that I can understand, uh, they create an equation based on drug sensitivity from cell lines and then create a prediction model of whether um, something would respond to either chemotherapy regimen uh, based on genomic profiling. And so the primary objective was to say that, could you use this equation to predict PT0 rate? Um, and the answer to that is no. So the negative predictive value of coxin was 50%, which is below imaging and examiner anesthesia of saying, of saying that someone would respond to chemotherapy, right? So it's not better than any of our clinical markers, um, and it, it didn't work. Although it, it's nice to know that we can get a trial like this done because that means that when we have another biomarker that we want to try, um, that we should be able to test it in a rigorous fashion. And so one silver lining, though, from the Coxon trial is that pathologic downstaging was actually pretty good, uh, between 50 to 60 percent, which is higher than um, what's been previously reported in the literature. And so that's, that, that's the one silver lining that I took away from, from the results of that trial. Another really exciting thing, as I mentioned before, our guidelines say that primary chemotherapy is not a treatment with curative intent for patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer, so patients who have localized cancer. There's a trial at Memorial Sloan Kettering which is using those uh, DNA damage response gene panel to select patients who potentially can forego cystectomy or uh, trimodal therapy solely based on a molecular profile. And so this is again, um, a, a pretty big trial in terms of informing. Are there some patients like my patient number four, which I'll, I'll show you, who are able to get a cure with a TUR and chemotherapy alone? And can we predict that by looking at these um, uh, DNA damage response uh, gene pathway and identify a subset of patients that we, we could potentially spare cystectomy or uh, trimodal, trimodal therapy? And about 25% of patients with bladder cancer have um, an alteration in one or more of these genes. And so although it's a, a small group that this might be a possibility for, the, the real important part of the trial is that um, can it be done? And I think this is going to be really exciting and hopefully will result out in the next couple of years. So then again, when you look at my patients, um, I added in the molecular uh, uh, profiling for these patients, which I which I had from these four patients, and so decipher here would have predicted that for patient number one they, that they wouldn't have had a chemotherapy response, 
For patient two, it says they would have. And for patient four, the decipher said it wouldn't have. And then what if I add in the DNA panel? So for this patient, um, uh, the consensus classifier, which is another one, um, is a similar thing. If I add in the UCSF 500 um, profile, doesn't really seem like they have any DNA damage response alterations in, in patient one. In patient two, it looks like they did. Um, so the RNA and the DNA line up. In patient three, I don't, I didn't really have any profiling for that patient. And in patient four, um, this patient did have an ERCC2 mutation, which is a, a, a DNA damage alteration. So the RNA and the DNA did not line up. So what actually happened in these patients? Well, again, patient number one was the poor patient that didn't respond to the chemotherapy. Um, patient number two did, and that's where the RNA and the DNA matched. Patient number three, we didn't run any genomics on. And patient number four, it looks like although the RNA said that chemotherapy maybe wasn't necessary, um, the DNA profile said that there would be a response. And this is like that patient in that last trial I was talking about, um, who's actually doing well right now, and it's at five years. Uh, we will see if this lasts um, longer, but all of it is very exciting and um, hypothesis generating. The other really new thing that I want to talk about before I get back to um, guidelines and uh, treatments for patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer is other neoadjuvant paradigms that are on the horizon. So the PURE study is looking at pembrolizumab as neoadjuvant therapy before radical cystectomy. And this is really exciting data from our colleagues in Italy, and it's showing over here in table one, a 42% pathologic complete response rate and a 54% PT2 or less um, response rate, which is uh, pretty phenomenal in, in terms of um, uh, T0 rates in survival for patients. The data from this trial are still um, uh, maturing and hopefully we'll also get survival outcomes soon. What was really interesting is that similar genomics were run with the Decipher platform for these patients. And it did appear that there was a molecular subtype or signature um, that correlated with who would respond to pembrolizumab compared to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And so potentially that, that slide that I showed from the TCGA kind of putting out a hypothetical paradigm where we could use these um, genomic characterizations for muscle invasive bladder cancer patients to help guide what we really should do with them. So we don't have to tell a patient that your outcome is going to be amazing if you get a response to chemotherapy. And we kind of skirt over that issue, well, what if they don't have a response? Um, what is the outcome there or the prognosis there? And it will really help uh, have a little bit uh, more informed and 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 um, hopefully more fruitful conversation with patients when you're trying to help them pick the therapy that's right for them. So back to the guidelines. Um, when you choose your curative intent or definitive treatment, you've got to be timely in your treatment. We know that there's a correlation between wait time and survival. It's part of the reason why cystectomy ends up being a tier 2B case um, during this COVID time, and it ends up being a case that uh, as long as everything is doing relatively okay in the community and the hospital setting, that those cases are still going. After neoadjuvant chemotherapy, usually the right timing on the AUA guidelines is stated at six to eight weeks, but you really don't want to delay more than three months. 
Um, these two, two studies, when you look at delay at the top and the bottom curve, solid and, and dotted, this is a delay less than two week, 12 weeks or three months. This is a delay more than 12 weeks or three months. And then this is a paper back in 2009 in, in JU that sort of looked at the wait time um, in, in days in terms of um, getting a diagnosis and a cystectomy. And as the time went on, uh, the hazard ratio of death went, went up. And I think that shows it nicely. When you're going to do a radical cystectomy, it's different if you're doing this on a man versus a woman. So in men, this involves removing the bladder, prostate, and seminal vesicles. Consider nerve sparing um, for your patients and discuss that with them. The technique is very similar to that of a radical prostatectomy. There have been some prostate sparing techniques, meaning leaving the prostate in place that have been described, but it is not advocated in any of our guidelines due to high recurrence rates in this issue of clinical staging and how we're wrong a lot of the time. Um, for women, anterior pelvic exenteration really has been uh, the mainstay for treatment. So this is not just the bladder, but also the uterus, cervix, fallopian tubes, ovaries, and anterior vagina. There are select cases where you really don't need to do this, in my opinion, actually many cases where you really don't need to do this. The risk of involvement of pelvic organs is less than 10%, and this is usually the vagina, and you can usually get a sense of this on a good exam under anesthesia. If a patient is low stage, really, really, really consider vaginal sparing. Um, patients do a lot better from a se sexual function outcomes. Although this is a little bit heresy, depending on who you talk to, you should consider an ovarian sparing procedure. There's a lot of data suggesting that even in women who are kind of perimenopausal or postmenopausal, you really don't need to take the ovaries. Um, when you look at a study by Gross et al. in uh, 2018 BJUI, it was a prospective cohort study. ROSC, meaning they spared all the uh, female organs, and SC is just standard cystectomy. And when you look at that, um, people do well. Um, overall survival, there was no difference between the group. Cancer-specific survival, there was no real difference between the two groups. Um, nobody had a positive surgical margin and nobody had ov ovarian cancer, although this is a short-medium follow-up, around 3.8 years. Um, local recurrence was low uh, for both groups. And so you really should consider this. And the main reason why, and this is another thing that I wanted to kind of highlight, is that there's a lot of things that we do in surgery, um, uh, specifically in cystectomy in women, that damage the neurovascular bundle that runs on the lateral aspect of the vagina. Um, you can devascularize the clitoris. And when you remove or damage gynecological organs, you again alter nerve as well as the pelvic support area. And so by doing pelvic organ preservations, you can really, really help patients' functional outcomes after surgery. And it is oncologically safe, granted that they don't have a large locally invasive tumor that is just barely resectable. So of course you have to use good clinical judgment in this situation. So surgical quality matters. And I'm gonna talk about a little bit about lymph node dissection and margin status. So mortality from cystectomy is higher at low versus high volume hospitals. Um, in a trial looking in the United States involving multiple institutions and surgeons, you gotta get that negative margin and you have to at least try to get 10 or more lymph nodes. Um, technically, in other studies, more than 17 or 18 is even better, but at least getting 10 or more lymph nodes um, is considered a adequate lymph node dissection. We'll talk a little bit about borders in a, little, in, in a bit. There is no salvage therapy after inadequate surgery. So again, this is some survival curve saying that 
if you get a positive surgical margin, people do terrible, and it's very hard to salvage that. Um, this is a slide from the core curriculum looking at lymphadenectomy. We do it because it improves our staging. It, it does improve survival, but the extent is really controversial. Do you do a standard, kind of extended, a super extended? And really, I think um, when you look at the borders of what your lymph node dissection should be, you should at least um, get to the internal iliac artery medially. You should get the node of co cloquet caudally. Uh, you should try to get up to um, the gen fem nerve in the psoas uh, laterally. And when, you, when you're talking about cranially, at least getting the part of the common iliac nodes where the ureter crosses um, should be sufficient. And the, reason, the other reason we do this is also for lymph node density. The more you take and the less number of nodes involved, people do better. If you have a lymph node density that's very high, so a lot of positive nodes um, compared to the number of nodes taken, people don't do as great as if you have more nodes with less of them involved. That might have to do more with tumor biology than surgery, but there is good evidence that you that you at least should do um, a, a standard to slightly extended lymph node dissection uh, as 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 part of doing a good operation for um, uh, for a radical cystectomy. Is super extended worth it? Do you need to go to the IMA? Do you need to get on the uh, get the lateral aspects of the great vessels? Do you need to get inner aortic cable? Um, should you get all of these nodes? And it turns out it's probably not worth it. You get a lot more complications, and you don't seem to have a benefit. Um, the U.S. trial should be resulted soon, but this was the trial from Europe that said that we probably don't need to get crazy, but we still need to do a good node dissection. So, what about the urethra? Um, the risk of a second primary urethral tumor is really dependent upon the extent of involvement of the prostatic urethra in men. And so that goes from nothing to focal CIS to diffuse CIS to ductal involvement to stromal invasion. However, a male urethrectomy is rarely performed at the same time of the cystectomy, since in the vast majority of cases, you can achieve that negative urethral margin. Um, you may need to surveil a patient a little bit closer if they have a lot of CIS in the prostatic ducts or prostatic urethra, um, but you're usually able to get a negative frozen section margin. Patients who have a positive final urethral margin can, can be considered for a delayed urethrectomy. For, for women, you're really looking at location of the tumor, and that's why in that TUR, you wanna know where your original resection or tumor was, and it's really important to know those things, as well as tumors involving the anterior vaginal wall. So robotics versus open, I'm not going to talk about this. Um, it's not inferior to open. Uh, you got to use the best tool for using those principles of surgical quality that I spoke about before, which are a lot more important than how you decide to do the uh, operation open or robotic. I will talk a little bit about ERAS because I do think it's useful in patients undergoing cystectomy and actually principles of perioperative management have made it into our AUA guidelines. So when you kind of look at all of the studies done on ERAS for cystectomy, length of stay favors ERAS, complication tends to favor ERAS, but readmission and mortality are not really affected. A lot of people ask me, well, what do we really need to do? What are the key tenets and core principles? I put them here so you guys can refer back to them and the slides will be posted um, after the talk. But really, the red star is what's recommended by our guidelines. You've got to have patient counseling. Nothing beats patient education. Do not do a bowel prep unless you're doing a large bowel diversion. 
you got to have adequate uh, DVT prophylaxis at the time of surgery. So heparin on table at induction, or you can consider Lovenox. And to con consider continuing that after surgery for one month, um, that's really important. And the other thing that they've that they stated is pretty important is Enereg or a mu, mu opioid receptor antagonist that essentially blocks opioid-induced ileus and constipation. And so those are the things that were really highlighted in the AUA guidelines. Um, this is another little summary of what ERAS in, in urology can look like and the, the things that I, I think are the most important and also combined with what's noted in the guidelines. I'll have our UCSF ERAS um, protocol up too as part of the slides um, so you guys can see what, what we do. Uh, for that and in case you want to refer to that and feel free to email me uh, regarding that too. So urinary diversion, I think the most important thing is that the choice is really with the patient as long as uh, from an oncologic perspective it is safe. And that's really the summary. There's no randomized data saying that one is superior to another in terms of quality of life, in terms of long-term outcomes, and in terms of patient regrets. Um, these are the diversions that you can do in continent or continent. So an ileal conduit is, is likely most common or an orthotopic or a continent cutaneous uh, diversion. Things using the anal sphincters really aren't done anymore and you really got to follow the patient up long term to make sure that they do okay. Um, trends in the, in the United States, um, continent diversions are going down. Uh, predictors of a continent diversion are being on the West Coast at an academic program, having an open surgery, and overall having um, a higher socioeconomic status. Um, this is a really important point. A positive urethral margin on frozen section with invasive cancer during a radical cystectomy is an absolute contraindication in men and women in terms of a um, orthotopic diversion, such as a neobladder, or very poor renal function um, is considered a, a contraindication, and they use a creatinine value in our AUA guidelines. These are some relative contraindications. You can use your clinical judgment when talking with patients. Um, I put this slide up because I think this is a really good patient decision aid and resource to, to talk with your patients about helping them figure out what diversion is appropriate for them. And there are some links here um, to both this, but also to patient-facing resources from patient advocacy organizations such as Beacon, which can be really, really helpful uh, for your patients specifically in terms of having these conversations. If someone has not had adjuvant chemotherapy, do it after surgery or offer it to them at least um, if they're at high risk for disease recurrence, mainly lymph node positive disease or clinical uh, or pathologic T3 or T4. Consider a clinical trial in this situation as well. So if you haven't involved a medical oncologist, please involve them if you see um, bad pathology after cystectomy and they haven't had uh, chemotherapy. Variant histology, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, aside that small cell urothelial carcinoma really should be treated differently and treated with primary systemic chemotherapy and then considered for um, localized therapy with either cystectomy or chemoradiation. Other than that, I would say that this keeps changing every few months on what you should or shouldn't do in terms of whether something responds or doesn't respond to chemotherapy. And so again, um, this really involves a multidisciplinary team if you see variant histology and figuring out what's right for your patient. 
So bladder preserving therapy with trimodal therapy, the NCCN guidelines probably have the best um, description of pathways and chemotherapy regimens. I think the really important point is that you got to do a maximal TRBT and then within six weeks start concurrent chemo and radiation therapy. And there's a lot of regimens available to you. Um, people do better if they don't have hydronephrosis, if they don't have carcinoma in situ, if you can get a complete TRBT, and then tumor size and multifocality are, are a soft uh, things in terms of associating with outcomes after TMT. This is just some more data looking at hazard ratios and all of those different variables. And probably the most robust study is, is um, doing, is looking at this propensity score matched outcomes from our colleagues in Canada, which show that really in, in, in a matched cohort, if you do trimodality therapy well, um, survival is equivalent. And that's shown right here with these two lines being right next to each other. You have to do surveillance after radiation, uh, after TMT for bladder cancer. And part of that really is a cystoscopy. So urologist is really necessary in terms of helping to drive the ship and making sure patients do get good follow-up. In talking about surveillance, um, imaging uh, for patients after having definitive treatment for muscle invasive bladder cancer is important and at the intervals that are listed here. Do not forget about the, the long-term outcomes of diversions, looking at vitamin B12 levels, um, metabolic acidosis, and renal function. Make sure you're monitoring that urethra if it's still there, um, clinically with a physical exam. And if they had a lot of high-risk features, like a lot of CIS, consider urethral wash in those high-risk cases. And then don't forget about the important survivorship considerations, continuing conversations about smoking cessation, diet, lifestyle, support groups, et cetera. And that's it I had. Um, I think we have a little bit of time for questions. And so I'll turn it over uh, to Claire to feel, to feel those. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Parton. That was an amazing overview of muscle invasive bladder cancer. Um, we do have some questions here. Uh, so the first question we got was, does a complete TRBT confer an improved response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy um, at the time of cystectomy? And if you were to get a referral uh, for potentially incompletely resected T2, um, is it worth going back to the, the OR for another TRBT before starting neoadjuvant chemotherapy? So really, really good question. I would say data is mixed on whether your clinical T0 that you give via TUR will end up uh, improving your response to chemotherapy in the end um, and giving you that pathologic uh, T0, right? And, and so we do know a clinical T0 doesn't um, is not equivalent to pathologic T0 with or without chemotherapy. We do think that some people end up to with a pathologic T0 from a TUR. So TUR is estimated to confer about a 10 to 15 percent of that PT0 rate at cystectomy. Um, there are a lot of people looking at this, specifically the group at Johns Hopkins that, ha that have a, a ton of interesting data, but in the end it seems like it has a lot more to do with tumor biology and whether it'll respond to chemotherapy. I do have that situation where when you, when you get a referral in and someone else has done the TUR, this is where that first TUR is pretty important and how somebody documents um, the procedure that they do and reasoning behind that. Um, I sometimes do like to repeat the TUR, especially if someone is having symptoms, 
although this is not mandatory and a lot of times it's not approved by insurance depending because they already have that diagnosis of muscle invasive bladder cancer. So if someone is having bleeding or some type of obstructive symptoms, then I'll go back and resect in that situation, but I don't do it every time um, because uh, honestly, it's not mandatory and I don't actually wanna um, delay the start of chemotherapy. But I know there's a lot of people who argue on both sides of that, um, that clinical situation. Okay, great. Um, a few people were asking about Decipher. Um, would you use it in any other setting than a clinical trial? Do you think in the future um, it will change your management or does it already change your management and uh, will insurance pay for this test? So currently it is not FDA approved and so insurance won't pay for the tests. However, some insurance will cover it. Um, when you when you submit for an authorization for it, is it changing my clinical decision making now? No, I do think we should do it in terms of a clinical trial, like really try to select patients for therapy and randomize them to treatment. I know that is going to be pretty hard to do, um, but I do think we need something um, a little more robust like that, or at least a larger prospective study um, looking at decipher and then how it predicts in the end. We have um, some uh, with, with certain amounts of patients. There is a commercial cohort of, of patients where this is being sent. Um, I sometimes get it in terms of interest, but I still, I still pretty much follow that paradigm of anybody who is eligible for neoadjuvant chemotherapy will have a medical oncology either here at UCSF or or with any of my pretty awesome um, local medical oncologists um, within their system to really talk about neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, so I'm hopeful that it will change how we take care of patients. I don't think we're there yet. I think we need a little more data. Okay, and um, some people were uh, curious about uh, your protocol uh, regarding opioids uh, postoperatively in the setting of giving Entreg. Uh, mm -hmm and patients that are already on uh, narcotics prior to surgery, how you manage that as well. Yes, and so right now, we try to go for a complete opioid sparing protocol. We use Exparel or um, the long-acting liposomal bubificane, but you could almost use any modality to try to reduce narcotics. If someone has not taken any narcotics by post-op day two, we stop the NREG because it really, confers its um, benefit in people who are taking opioids. If someone is taking opioids before surgery, you cannot give NREG if they're taking it for more than 60 mil equivalents for five consecutive days. So either I work at opioid re reduction below that amount prior to surgery, or if somebody is already on op opioids and I can't give them NREG, I do use methylonotrexone, which is another medication that's supposed to block um, opioid receptors in the bowel and is uh, is um, approved for use in patients who are on chronic, chronic opioids. And so try to help bowel recovery from, from that way. But that's how I'm sort of um, um, titrating NREG in the setting of trying not to use any opioids at all uh, for cystectomy. Okay, we got a few questions regarding the urethra. Um, do you routinely get frozen sections intraoperatively regardless of the type of diversion you're doing? And then post-op, how do you um, surveil the retained urethra? 
I I do get frozen sections, but I, I think those of you who have been in the OR with me, I sometimes get frustrated by them um, when they aren't able to give me a more definitive result. And honestly, it's not the pathologist's fault. Um, when you look at a frozen section, the artifact can be quite profound. Um, I pay a lot more attention to them in patients where I am um, where I'm doing a neobladder in terms of looking for invasive cancer, but I do get them even if I do a conduit. However, generally in those situations, I am trying to get the shortest urethral stump as, as possible. Part of it is habit, honestly. It's just that um, that's, what, that's what I do, and I try to do the same thing always, and so I do it for every case. In terms of surveilling the urethra, I generally go by clinical exam. So I tell patients that um, any bleeding in the urethra, any increase in discharge, I need to know about right away. Um, physical exam is also an important part of our survivorship um, pathway. And so doing a physical exam on the routine urethra is, I, I think, pretty important. I don't do urethral washes unless they have a high risk um, for what I think might be a secondary urethral occurrence, meaning generally those are people with profound carcinoma in situ or prostatic stromal invasion. Um, and so those are the patients I do urethral washes in. Okay. Well, I think we're out of time. Uh, a few more questions have been trickling in as we've been talking, but we're going to post the answers online. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Porton, for being here and for your great talk. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.